This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 77, Language. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Here's what I have for you this week. Communication is both my vocation and avocation, and language is the tool of my trade. This week, I will be taking you behind the curtain to show you a bit of how my mind works. Terrifying prospect of that. We'll discuss the least appreciated form of speech, why we have punctuation at all, the differences between implications and inferences and why you should care, and how you can prove your point with literally any book in the world. Let's start with what I've been preaching. Usually I wait until the last segment of the podcast to talk about games, but I'd like to share with you a game that I actually play in the pulpit every once in a while with those who are listening to me preach. I'll play it with you here today. It's easy. It's fun. It's called Fun with Prepositions. And I'll show you how it works. You're skeptical, I can tell already, but bear with me. This is going to be great. I'll refer you, for instance, to Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. Those who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, the text says. And similar things are said in Romans chapter 6 and verse number 3 and 4. Let's say, for instance, you are in a bathtub. At some point, if you are currently in a bathtub, you must have gotten into the bathtub, right? See, in is a preposition, into is a preposition. If you are in something, then at some point you must have gotten into something. See, you're enjoying it already, aren't you? Fun with prepositions. The reason I bring it up in the context of Galatians 3.27 and Romans 6.3 and 4 is because we all want to be in Jesus Christ, and we want to for a variety of very good reasons. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's a good thing. We think about the spiritual blessings that are ours, the power of prayer, the, the hope that we have, forgiveness of sins, the ability to worship, that sort of thing. All of those are in Jesus. So clearly we want to be in Jesus. The same thing goes for the inheritance that is going to be ours. We're told that it is going to be ours. It is ours already, in fact. We have been given this predestined inheritance in Jesus. So if we have this relationship with Jesus, that gives us this inheritance. And of course, the inheritance we're talking about there is heaven. We get to go to heaven when we die. That is our inheritance. It is what we expect, what we fully and totally expect. And while we wait for that... We're told in Philippians 4, verse 7, that the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, or, or different versions translate different ways, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, or in Jesus Christ. So there again, while we are waiting for heaven, while we are enjoying these spiritual blessings, there is this peace of God that other people cannot understand. And some people have taken that to mean a, a personal peace of mind, that we are settled within ourselves, we feel comfortable, we feel at peace. Uh, within ourselves, there's certainly a case to be made there. Uh, some have argued that it's more of a spiritual peace, that it is a peace with God, a God who is set against us because of our sin, but now we are put at, at ease with God. We have peace. We're reconciled with him, whereas previously 
we were at war with him. There's certainly a biblical case to be made with that. There is, a, to a certain degree at least, a peace that we have among comrades, a peace that we have among brethren particularly, and maybe to a certain degree also, people out there in the world. We are no longer bellicose, belligerent type people. We, we are amiable, we are happy, we are joyful on a regular basis. We're easy to get along with, at least on a surface level we are. And certainly that is the case with brothers and sisters in Christ. Personally, I tend to lean toward the, the personal piece, but you can take it however you want. Clearly, this is a preferred lifestyle, a place where you want to be, a place that you are going to be feel good about yourself and feel good about your present and your future. This is found in Jesus. So we're talking about all spiritual blessings. We're talking about heavenly hope. We're talking about peace of mind. All of these things come to us in Jesus. Well, it sounds to me like in Jesus is a place that I want to be. And this brings us back to fun with prepositions. If I want to be in Jesus, at some point, I need to get into Jesus. Right? Just like the bathtub. If I'm in the bathtub, I must have gotten into the bathtub at some point. If I'm going to claim to be in Jesus, then at some point I got into Jesus, right? So the key question here, obviously, is how do I get into Jesus? And that brings us to Galatians 3.27 and Romans 6, 3 and 4. We get into Jesus through baptism. And I'm not suggesting here that baptism is the only important thing that you're ever going to do, the only spiritual work that you're ever going to do, the only requirement for salvation, the only thing God asks of you, any such nonsense as that. Nobody I know teaches that. I certainly don't teach that. But there is clearly a point in the mind of God as God administers grace to people who are unworthy and yet he loves us and he has mercy upon us. There is some point where we make a transfer. Paul talks about this in Colossians 1 verse 13, how we've been taken out of the kingdom of Satan and delivered into the kingdom of his beloved son. There is a transition point, like a border between two countries, where at one point you are in one country, and now all of a sudden you're not, you're in this other country. There is a point where you get into Jesus. And these two passages we're talking about here both say that it happens in baptism. And I am not aware of any passage that says that it happens any other time. This is the transition point. We're not suggesting it's the first thing or the last thing you do in God's service. I'm not even suggesting it's the most important thing that you do. But it is the fulcrum. It is the point of transition. And the obvious application of this is to ask whether you have, in fact, been baptized into Christ Jesus. Because, as I understand the New Testament, if you weren't baptized into Christ Jesus, you're not in Christ Jesus. And clearly, you want to be in Christ Jesus. That's why you're listening to this podcast, because you want to be in Jesus, and you should want to be in Jesus. I want you to be in Jesus. And that's why it's necessary that you understand what the New Testament says about baptism and that you put it to work in your life, that you yourself are baptized in water for remission of sins in the name of Jesus Christ. That's how the followers of the apostles got into Jesus. That's how you and I get into Jesus. I'm struck for any other way that it happens. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. Eats, Shoots, and Leaves by Lynn Truss may not be the book for you, unless you are a punctuation, syntax, and grammar fan like I am. Granted, we're a, a rare breed. 
fortunately, I have the acquaintance of a very dear friend who also is one. He gifted this book to me several years ago. And it does a very good point of pointing out in a humorous and yet sophisticated way how nuances of language, particularly with punctuation and syntax and spelling even and things of that nature, how this can dramatically impact our ability to communicate with people for good or for ill. The, uh, the title of the book, of course, comes from the use of commas or non-use of commas in the story of the panda who walks into a restaurant and eats, shoots, and leaves. Well, are we talking about his dinner order? That's what he ordered. He uh, likes to eat, shoots, and leaves, as pandas do. Or is he a criminal who found somebody he didn't like and he entered into the restaurant and after eating, he shot somebody or something or whatever and then left? It's impossible to say from the spoken word. That's one of the advantages of the written word. We can introduce punctuation and help people understand the nuance of the language. Of course, spoken language has its advantages also. There is body language and tone of voice and that sort of thing that, that connote extra meaning beyond the simple words. In either case, though, the point is that we need to do what we can to communicate effectively and learn how to do that. And proper use of punctuation, uh, proper spelling, that sort of thing, is just one example. Basically, it illustrates the fact that there are rules for a reason. There's a reason why we have punctuation rules. There's a reason we have syntax. There's a reason that we have spelling rules. Because you may be able to determine the meaning of a person's language if they do not enunciate or if they do not spell correctly or whatever. On the other hand, you they may do things absolutely perfectly and you still misunderstand. It's not entirely upon the communicator to do the best that he or she can, but surely that is a good first step. With words as my tool of the trade, I find it increasingly important to present myself whether it is in spoken form or, or whether it's in written form, whatever, to present myself in a way that is easy to understand as much as is possible. Now, sometimes that means governing the way that I speak. Sometimes that means governing the things that I say. Some topics maybe aren't appropriate for certain situations or that aren't appropriate at all even, depending on the, the situation, depending on the audience. But whatever I say ought to be said in such a way as to get the maximum effectiveness. Now, it's tougher to speak that way. It's tougher to write that way than just kind of shoot from the hip and say whatever you feel like saying, write whatever you feel like writing, and just hope that the people on the other end can decipher all this garbage. You can do that. A lot of people do. You might go so far as to say most people do. I don't know if that's fair or unfair. But certainly there is a lot of very poor communication technique out there, and I suspect that most of it is because people simply don't care. They would rather fail to exercise control over their own speech, their own words, and put that burden off onto somebody else. It's easier for me to be, be free and easy and then blame somebody else when they don't understand it properly. Well, that's a pretty much guarantee that we are going to communicate with each other very poorly. And I would like to think that we would want to try to avoid that rather than having, in our own minds anyway, a lack of culpability. Why don't instead we work a little bit harder and understand each other better? Now, that may mean the occasional Oxford comma here or there. That may mean 
speaking a little bit longer, speaking a little bit shorter, whatever it happens to be. But whatever we have to do, we get there. And I was thinking about the Sermon on the Mount with regard to that and how so many of the principles that Jesus deals with in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 touch directly on this notion. The idea of going the extra mile, for instance, chapter 5 and verse 39. Are you willing to exert yourself beyond normal parameters, beyond even reasonable parameters, so as to maximize the effectiveness of what you're trying to do? Well, that shouldn't be required of me. Well, maybe it's not required of you. But what if it would help? What if it would be useful? What if putting yourself out a little bit would help somebody else? And that's not the immediate context, of course, of going the extra mile. But the same principle applies. The same thing in chapter 7, verse 1 and 2, where we're supposed to judge not that you be not judged, because the measure that we use to judge others will be judged to us also. Realize that if we are haphazard with the way that we communicate with people, they're going to do the same with us. And if we blame them for being ignorant and, and unlearned and uncaring with regard to how they listen to us, they're going to see us the same way. If we want to be understood, we have to exert ourselves. The golden rule that he goes on to, set, to mention, uh, we paraphrase oftentimes in chapter 7, verse 12, basically treat others the way that you would be treated. As far as you would have men do unto you, do also unto them, for this is the law and the prophets. Your dealings with other people is all about this, treating people the way that you want to be treated. If you want to be understood, then strive to understand other people. If you want them to exert themselves to understand you properly, then you exert yourself in understanding them. If we all want to get along, if we all want to understand one another, then I think we can go a long way toward actually accomplishing that goal. And wouldn't that be a better world to live in, where we actually understand one another, we care about one another, we're listening to one another, maybe even, on the rare occasion, learning from one another. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. This is what I've been hearing. All right, I'm going to delve deep into geekdom here, so bear with me. This is important, I promise you. An inference is on the part of the listener or reader. It is what he or she takes from the material. An implication is on the part of the author or speaker. It is what he or she puts into the material. Very important distinction. Let me elaborate a little bit. If an author is implying something or is seen to be implying something, what that means is he or she is putting something into the text, some kind of information or whatever, but not in such a way as to be obvious. It's understated. It is hinted at. It is the job of the reader to go out and get it, perhaps because it makes it more meaningful reading experience or hearing experience. Maybe the author's just messing with you. Likewise, inferences happen all the time. And the inference is when we get something out of the text. Uh, this is part of your English class back in high school or junior high school or, or college where you are inferring from the text that the author meant this, that, or something else, which he may not have meant. But it is the inference that you yourself draw. And I make the distinction between these two because we spend an awful lot of time in biblical matters drawing inferences from the text and understanding that because of what God said or because of the way he said it or whatever, I'm taking from that that 
it's okay to do this or it's wrong to do that or I'm correct and somebody else is incorrect, what have you. Usually it is done in such a way as to rationalize the position that the person in question already has. And it doesn't necessarily at its core have a whole lot to do with what God is actually saying. And a lot of it basically denies the very concept that God is saying anything. This is a concept that we deal with a lot. Again, back to English class. Some of the professors, some of the the teachers will say, well, what you take out of it is the important thing. And then you take a test and you took out of it something different than the professor took and he gives you a bad grade, which never seemed to be fair to me. But be that as it may. When we are reading God's message, the temptation oftentimes is to say that we are taking a certain inference from the text because of what is unstated or, or underplayed, whatever, And because of that, we're going to go in a certain direction. And the emphasis is all on us. We need to reverse that, that we need to put more of an emphasis on what God is implying rather than what we ourselves personally infer. Basically, it's all about intent. Do you want to know what God has for you, or do you want to rationalize what you want for yourself? God has promised in his text that he in his means of communication, whether it's implications or anything else, that he has done his job well. And if you believe in a loving God, if you believe in a God who wants you to be saved and has given you his Bible so that you can be saved, it really doesn't make any sense that it be any other way. Ephesians chapter 3, for instance, verse number 4 and 5, by reading this, that is by reading this letter and by implication, if you will, the rest of the scriptures, By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This message, particularly in this context, the message of Jewish and Gentile equality in Jesus, this was given to the apostles and communicated through the apostles to mankind at large. This was God's message. And he says here, Paul, by inspiration, says, if you read this, you can understand. You have the power to understand. God wants you to understand. It's given to you in language that you can understand. It may be a little bit difficult from time to time, but if you want to understand, you can. I'll refer you to Proverbs chapter 2 and verse number 1 and following. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, listening closely to wisdom and directing your heart to understanding, furthermore, if you call out to insight and lift your voice to understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it like hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. You will understand, he says, if you want to badly enough. This is not some kind of trick that God is playing on us. God wants us to receive this information. Well, why didn't he just come out and say it outright? Well, lots of times he did. And it's probably worth noting here that many of the things that God said in the most straightforward way imaginable are still rejected by human beings. Human beings who claim to believe the Bible, who claim to be following the Bible. So let's not kid ourselves in thinking here that the problem is on God's end. God spoke to us in a way that we can and we should understand. As we read in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, talking about Paul's writings. Peter himself, by inspiration, says some of those things are difficult to understand. But the problem is in the hearts and minds of the ones who want to twist and distort his words. The problem is not with Paul. The problem is not with the Holy Spirit. The problem is not with the Heavenly Father. The problem is with the reader who already has in his or her mind an idea where he wants to go or she wants to go. That is 
the problem. The problem is on the inferences that we are drawing, which is to say the inferences that we want to draw, rather than what God is actually saying to us. The message for us is to search and find, because God will help us find them, the message that God has for us, including the implications that he's leaving for us there, some of which we call necessary implications. It's the only reasonable understanding of the text. You can do this, but you can only do it if you leave aside the idea of feeding into this notion of your own personal message, your own personal preferences, and drawing the inferences from the text that will support that message. This is not about rationalizing our own preconceived notions. This is about finding God's will for our life. You can do it. God will help. But we have to give it our all. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. This is what I've been playing. Bring Your Own Book is maybe more of an activity than a game, granted, but it counts as far as I'm concerned anyway. It is a game in which everybody at the table brings their own book, as the name of the game would imply. For my wife, maybe that would be Jane Eyre. Maybe one of my daughters would bring a Harry Potter book. Maybe my daughter Kyla would bring one of her textbooks from nursing school. Maybe I'm trying to be a smart aleck and I'll bring a cookbook. Whatever, it doesn't matter. Anything that would qualify as a book would be fine. And then you draw from a deck of cards, and the card asks you to give a proper response to a certain situation. Maybe it is something you say at gunpoint. And then you have a predetermined amount of time, a minute, minute and a half, whatever, to thumb through this book that you have and find an appropriate response. And the one who has the best response, maybe it's literal, maybe it's funny, whatever, the one who is giving the, the clue chooses one, and that person wins the round, as it were, and it rotates around. And you go to a predetermined number, five wins or seven wins or whatever, depending on how long you want to play. And you'd be surprised how easy it is to do this. It, it doesn't always work. Sometimes it's just silly. Sometimes it's completely and totally nonsensical. But sometimes you get a real chuckle out of it. Clearly, there was no intention on the part of Ms. Bronte or the part of Betty Crocker or whatever to address this particular situation in this ridiculous game that we're playing. That there's no intent there at all. But there can be a connection. And that's a different illustration of the same principle that you've probably all heard of where someone says he's going to open up his Bible and whatever the Bible says, that's what he's going to do. And he opens it up and finds the passage where Judas is going to go out and hang himself. And he doesn't want to do that, so he opens it up and some other place, and what thou doest, do quickly. Oh, no, it's getting even worse. That's a ridiculous approach to the Bible. I would like to think that all of us would understand that. But that's what you can do. That's what you can be guilty of if you're not careful. What we need to do with our reading, especially with our Bible reading, is read with intent. Read with not a preconceived notion in our mind, but to try to find what God has for us there. And, and I will give you a warning here. If you don't do that, if you come into the Bible instead with a preconceived notion in your mind, the way that you want the Bible to read, you're going to find that the Bible reads exactly that way. It becomes a very self-fulfilling and self-gratifying process. This is what Paul calls in 2 Thessalonians 4 verse 11, a delusion, a working of error that God permits to come into your life so that you can believe something that's wrong, which may sound bitter, it may sound uh, arbitrary, it may sound even wrong, 
of God to do? Why would he want us to believe something that's wrong? Well, it's not so much that he wants people to believe something that's wrong, but he has determined that we believe only what he has told us is right. And if we are not of that mind, the gospel will not appeal to us. We're going to figure out a way to reject the gospel. Jesus himself says this in so many words in Matthew chapter 11 and uh, verse number 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. Surely, if he wanted a plan that would save everybody, he could give us one of those. He didn't. He gave us a plan that would only save people of faith, that would only save people who are willing to listen to what he has to say on the matter. And that's what the gospel does. It filters us out. That's always been what Jesus was trying to do, not save everybody, but save people who wanted to be saved, who loved the Lord and who cared enough about what God said to actually seek it out. That's what we need to be doing. We need to be listening to what he has to say, not reading things into it from our own experiences, from our own preferences, but trusting that his word is right, using his word for effective and proper purposes to his glory rather than for our own purposes. If you use it for your own purposes, I promise you, you'll get whatever you want out of it. You'll rationalize anything. It will make sense to you. You may or may not be able to make sense out of it to somebody else, but it's not going to matter because you are where you want to be. But you're not where God wants you to be. It's all about faith, essentially. Remember James chapter 1, verses 5 and following, that if you lack wisdom, you ask of God, because God gives wisdom to people. God wants people to know. God wants people to grow. But you have to ask in faith. And the one who doesn't act in faith don't think that you're going to get anything from the Lord. You may get something from something else, but you're not going to get anything from the Lord. Because that's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. It's all about faith. Do you have enough faith to simply open up the Bible and listen to God? If you do, I promise you, God will speak to you. God will direct you. God will bring you home. That is the way the gospel is intended. It, just like the rain comes down to the earth and, and doesn't return without watering the earth, Isaiah talks about. It. That's the way that God's word is. It will not return to me void without accomplishing its purposes. God will save the people who want to be saved. The question is whether you're one of those people. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please consider subscribing to the audio and or video versions, and better yet, sharing them through word of mouth or on social media. Feel free to reach out to me through my website, www.halhammonds.com, or through Facebook and Instagram. Criticisms, corrections, and encouragement are always welcome. Until next time, be strong in the Lord, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.